Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower dot com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber dot com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com/weightloss. That's PlushCare.com/weightloss. PlushCare.com/weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower dot com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber dot com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which Is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com/perfectmanny20 for twenty percent off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com/perfectmanny20 for twenty percent off your first system. Hello and welcome, dear delegates, to episode 13 of the Delegation Game. In the last episode, we met Premier Poincaré. We watched the Council for Russian Freedoms convene for the first time. We heard some incredible speeches from the Dominions, and we just generally watched the conference go by in relative harmony. 
This week our episode contains an awful lot of pieces. First and foremost, we're joined by a new delegate, Mr. Owen Lind of Newfoundland. So welcome to our world, Mr. Lind. I'm sure you'll feel right at home next door to Arthur McAulville. The neutral nations were awarded restitution. The racial equality proposal from last week failed to pass by a single vote. But our main event is arguably the delegation which Alistair Tancred has led to the President Marshal Ferdinand Foch. Tancred, joined by neutral Swiss and Spanish delegates, seek to modify Foch's red lines. And they'll find the President Marshal more than willing to treat, since Foch wants some concessions of his own. Tancred reveals a pact with Spain. Tancred gets recommended for the Order of the Garter. Tancred weeps. That man gets up to an awful lot in this episode, doesn't he? The Minor Council picks up the pieces. We see the Minor Powers deal with the fallout of several questions, as well as their own rivalries. How will the Polish, Hungarian, Romanian and Czech delegates react to the expansion of Fosch's Continental Defence Accord, or CDA, aimed at containing Bolshevism, where apparently no one else can? How will Dmitry Robotnik react to the news that, in fact, the United States and United Kingdom have dropped out of the Council for Russian Freedoms? Mostly because, well, yeah, I kind of didn't realise that they didn't actually vote for it, so, saws. This left only the French and a few other nations willing to intervene, but how will these nations react to this news? With Warsaw being prepared still as the basis for this tour of revenge against the nefarious Bolsheviks, will the Minor Council be able to hold it together long enough to make meaningful recommendations to the Council of Eight? And how will the Dominions, now joined by Ireland's Sean T. O'Kelly, respond to these continental developments? All this and so much more is ahead in this episode, History, Friends and Delegates. So stick around to the end, where we reveal two resolutions, which you'll have to vote on. But remember, you actually have two weeks to make your decisions, because there'll be no episodes next week, as it's my anniversary, and I think Anna would kill me. To avoid that failure in domestic diplomacy, we'll return instead on the 11th of May with episode 14 of the Delegation Game. If you're ready then, I'd like to say welcome to the Delegation Game, and remember that if you want to join up, it's never too late. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and sign up for $6 a month. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to a tense scene where the previously solitary Newfoundlander was about to be bolstered at long last by his fellow countrymen. Arthur McAulville's heart was beating faster than normal, but this was to be expected. Whether it was anticipation or apprehension, McAulville was eager indeed to meet with Mr. Owen Lind, the General Secretary of the Newfoundland Civil Service and a firm advocate for Newfoundland independence. Judging by his resume, it sounded like McAulville would have a firm ally in Owen Lind, and this was fortunate indeed, since it was becoming increasingly obvious that there was strength in numbers and that the loudest voices were most likely to be heard. The other Dominions had been notably jealous of Lynn's arrival, but a family emergency had delayed Lynn's departure from St. John's, and McAulville had been left empty-handed. Still, he had been told by the government in St. John's that his work had been noted and appreciated. Newfoundland Marines had already landed on the islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, and a contingent of 500 Marines was also on its way to Warsaw to volunteer for the expedition into Russia. As far as McAulville understood it, this had been a difficult week for the Council for Russian Freedoms, as many of the original supporters of the expedition had dropped out owing to American and British opposition. Yet, 
The fires of revenge burned bright still, and volunteers from all over the world, in addition to the rump, French and Polish contribution, would ensure that the mission still went ahead. But Russia was a world away. Owen Lind was reportedly only a few minutes away by car. He had arrived in the port of Dover that morning and was due to arrive at the Annabay Hotel within minutes. It was barely past midday on the 27th of April, yet McCallville had already consumed several whiskies. This hadn't been the plan, but he had adapted as best as he could. The bartender was beginning to eye him up and down, but McCallville didn't care. Soon he would be joined by an ally, a priceless resource in this tumultuous peace conference. The car turned left, and gravel spat out from underneath its tyres. Owen Lind couldn't help but marvel at the driveway and the impressive structure which was laid out before him. Even his driver seemed impressed. Quite the place, sir, he said. The driveway was lined with large oak trees, which seemed to be a common theme of the grounds. People were milling around and sunning themselves on wooden chairs. Others could be seen seated out the front of the bar. Lind hadn't given much thought to where he would fit in, but he knew that first impressions were critically important. Considering what he had learned of the conference, Arthur McCallville was likely desperate to meet him, so it would be difficult to get off on the wrong foot. Lind checked his pocket watch, which held a picture of his recently deceased father, Owen Lind Sr. Just before he had died, his father had learned of Lind's appointment to the peace conference, and his eyes had lit up when he realised that his son would have the chance to speak for Newfoundland. Make me proud, son, he had said. Lind felt an unexpected wave of emotion come over him. It wasn't just his country, but his family who he was representing, and he did not intend to let either of them down. The car braked and came to a gradual stop. The door opened, and Owen Lind scrambled out. His fine leather shoes clicked onto the gravel. The sun was shining still, and the front entrance to the Annabay Hotel was decorated with the most active daffodils he had ever seen. He nodded at his driver and walked in through the door. Red carpet caught his eye first, as did the enormous lobby where several high-ranking officials were both seated and standing. Apparently this was the place where negotiations were made and business was done. One figure with a large belly and brightly coloured waistcoat stood out, as did a well-groomed man on his right with a wide smile and a cloud of cigarette smoke above him. Lind walked forward as the bar was on his left. He could smell it from here. He was determined to meet his fellow countrymen before he did anything else. At least if the meeting went badly, he could use checking into the hotel as an excuse to get away from him. He took a few steps into the bar and his shoes clicked again on hard oak floors. A somewhat forlorn-looking man on a table by himself, surrounded by empty glasses, did not look up. From the photographs he had seen, he looked like the Russian delegate Dmitry Robotnik. Then he saw him over to the corner, a glass of whiskey in hand, reading a newspaper, or perhaps pretending to read one. He recognised McCallville instantly, though he was somewhat gaunter than his picture had had him. Perhaps the months of stress had weighed down on him after all. Lind walked with purpose over to him. Mr. McCallville, Lind said, what a pleasure to make your acquaintance. McCallville looked up and smiled before standing up and stretching out a hand. Mr. Lind, he said, as Lind shook his hand with some vigour, it is brilliant to meet you. Both men in their own way were relaxed at long last. There was much work to be done and now that the dreaded first meeting was over, they could get down to business. 
Tell me about the hotel, Lind said, gazing around the bar. Well, Mr. Lind, you will easily find several of the world's most distinguished people milling around the lobby at any one time, attempting to collaborate or launch some kind of scheme. In the bar, you will generally find the more upset or down-on-their-look delegates eager to take a load off. Walking around the grounds, you will often find the happiest delegates, celebrating their recent victories with a spot of walking or sunning. Alternatively, I have found the woods a wonderful place to escape from the hustle and noise. How are we represented, Mr. McCallville? Lind asked, still gazing around the room. Well, due to recent changes, Mr. Lind, the representation of the delegates here has been somewhat streamlined. Streamlined, Lind said, raising a bushy eyebrow. I was told that our country had representation on the Minor Council. Is this no longer true? Ah, you are up to date then, McCallville sighed. Yes, we have a seat on the Minor Council, which I believe is a far more effective method of contributing to the conference. Why, previously it was like a mad scramble for everyone to make their voices heard. Now our Minor Council can make recommendations to the Council of Eight, which is the final say, and we can also debate the resolutions which the Council of Eight puts forward. Occasionally, Mr. Lind, we're all invited to plenary conferences to give all involved a chance to speak, but these can quickly become messy affairs. Indeed, Lind said. And how are our prospects? Well, Mr. Lind, I will not lie to you. Newfoundland is in need of another pair of hands. Our voice is small but respected, and we have made important contributions in the past, but I still worry about the dominant voice of Canada and the ignorance which pervades the conference regarding Newfoundland's status. If I may make a suggestion, Mr. McCallville, perhaps the best chance our country has to assert its independence is to formulate a new proposal to be put to the Minor Council. This proposal would underline our sovereignty. What proposal were you considering? McCallville asked. A straightforward but completely clear one. A request that the Minor Council recognise the independent Dominion status of Newfoundland. This would serve as a good acid test and highlight where our rivals may reside. That is an excellent idea, Mr. Lind. I will begin drawing at the proposal immediately. Very good, Mr. McCarville. I will take my leave and check in, but if you have time later, I would love the grand tour of the Annabay. It seems to be quite the place. It would be my pleasure, Mr. Lind, and allow me to thank you again for coming all the way. My condolences to your family and for your loss. Mr. Lind Sr. was a patriot of the old order. I am sure you would agree that no distance is too far to travel in the service of St. John's, Mr. McCauville, but I appreciate that. Our family will miss him terribly, as will I, but his record of service moves me to do my utmost for my country and people. Excellent, Mr. Lind. Newfoundland and I are blessed indeed to have you by our side. Oh, perhaps you would like to walk with me to a meeting of the Minor Council once you check in. Owen Lind weighed up the offer. In fact, I think that is a wonderful idea, Mr. McCauville. I will follow you to the check-in desk, and then you can lead the way. The two Newfoundlanders opened a large oak door about eight feet in height to enter a room which was much bigger than Lind had expected. Already there was a debate going on between the sad-looking Russian he had seen earlier and the tubby man in the brightly coloured waistcoat. A long table dominated the room, and the two men who were standing were the only ones talking. There were many empty seats, but the minor council couldn't be full every day. A stenographer provided the unintentional music for the room as he battered and tapped out the conversation of the two men, who were both speaking in French. 
I see you have encountered Dinglebrush already, McCallville whispered. A man of quantity, not necessarily quality. The room does not smell exceptional, Lind whispered back as they approached the table. Also the doing of Dinglebrush, McCallville replied. The man's constitution is unfortunately affected. Still, he's a good window into Belgium. The man he is engaged with is Monsieur Robotnik, the delegate for Democratic Russia. I saw him surrounded by empty glasses on the table across from you, Lind replied. Ah yes, we shared a drink. The poor man feels his cause to be wretched, now that the Americans and Brits have abandoned the Council for Russian Freedoms. But I tried to bolster his mood with the news that 500 Marines are on their way from Newfoundland. Lind then interjected. Oh no, sir, the call for volunteers was much more impressive than that. Our country is sending 1,000 of its best men to fight for Russia's freedom and avenge the slaughter of noble men like Clemenceau. What brilliant news, Mr. Lind. It makes one proud to see our fine men fight for justice and freedom in this way. The men's conversation was suddenly interrupted. Mr. McCalville, please present your new ally to the Minor Council, as we have not been formally introduced, boomed Paul Mons, the Belgian foreign minister. McCalville's head snapped forward to attention, and he rose quickly out of his chair. Thank you, Monsieur Mons. I present to the room Mr. Owen Lind, General Secretary of the Newfoundland Civil Service, a determined patriot and friend of democracy and small nations everywhere. Very good, Mr. McCarville. Welcome, Mr. Lind, and thank you for joining us, Imans said. We were just about to voice our approval for the Neutral Nations Restitution Programme. Might I interject, Monsieur Imans? Came a voice at the back of the room. It was Paul von Leto Vorbeck. My friends, I know that I only have observer status, but I hope you will consider a proposal to put forward before both councils today to recognise Germany, Bavaria and Austria as delegates to this minor council rather than observers. I accept that the final peace treaty will be one moulded by the Allied powers, but I urge those present not to forget the principles which moved Germany to make peace. With the voiding of the punitive Western peace treaty, and my role in crafting this restitution treaty here, I feel entitled to request that our participation in the conference be normalised. It would bring my countrymen and I great relief to know that Germany has a voice once more. Polymons coughed loudly before responding. General, you know how I value your contributions and respect your record of wartime service to your country, regardless of which side you fought on, of course. However, I feel compelled to remind you that France ripped up our previous conference largely on the basis of German representation in the conference, and I'm sure my peers would fear that such a reaction would be provoked once more should you gain a seat. I understand, Your Excellency. Paul von Leto Vorbeck replied. This is why I request only minor council representation, not a seat on the Council of Eight. This way, Germans will still have a voice, but no overriding control. It is a compromise I wish to seek for the sake of peace and friendship with our former foes. I'm willing to make any range of commitments to ensure its success. Paul Mons had his thinking face on. General, perhaps you should come with me as I'm shortly going to present our approval for the restitution proposal to the Council of Aid in any case, and I could propose this concept at the same time as well. It would be my pleasure, Your Excellency, von Leto Vorbeck replied. The walk to the Council of Aid was a long and not particularly pleasant one. The room was on the top floor of the Annabay Hotel, and the lift had been out of order for several days, 
owing to a shortage of oil. The staircase was stuffy and steep, a task far below the dignity of the figures seated on the Council of Eight. To compensate for the broken elevator, the Big Three, and the Japanese, had their lodgings moved to the top floor, and a rudimentary bar was set up there as well. One could have asked why the leading delegates of the conference were being moved, rather than simply moving the room where the Council of Eight was being held, but reportedly it was Poincaré's insistence that the Council of Eight be as high up in the hotel as possible, so that its position in the conference would be clear. Finally reaching the top, Imons signalled for von Leto Vorbeck to wait. General, what about a drink first, so that we do not enter the room, puffing and panting? Von Leto Vorbeck nodded in agreement. It would not do to show weakness as soon as he entered the room. I understand your position, Mr. President, but it is impossible to contain the mood of the people of France. President Marshal Foch has issued an order welcoming all who wish to volunteer for the cause. And who am I, or forgive me, you, in fact, to stop them? Monsieur Poincaré, Wilson replied, I fear you may have misunderstood me. I do not wish to stem the tide against the Bolsheviks. I only wish to emphasise that neither myself nor Mr. Lloyd George are in a position to guarantee soldiers, and I believe that all nations should have a choice in the matter, for it is hard enough controlling our own peoples without worrying for the fates of others too. Poincaré nodded, and Lloyd George interjected. Gentlemen, I'm currently awaiting word from Mr. Alistair Tankred, who, as you know, has ventured to Paris to meet with President Marshal Ferdinand Foch alongside Swiss and Spanish observers. Perhaps during the course of their negotiations, the position of France vis-à-vis the Council for Russian Freedoms will become clearer. Roosevelt then spoke up. I understand that the void of the Western Peace Treaty has the potential to set our efforts back several months. Do we have any suggestions on how progress might be made to... Craft a new peace treaty for the West? Lloyd George interjected again. Thank you, Mr. President. I was just getting to this development. While it does complicate matters, I believe it is the right course. Matters have changed dramatically since the original ratification of that agreement, and since the terrible fate of Mr. Horton von Hotzendorf, some alteration of its contents is necessary. Will your delegation commit to helping us forge a new peace? Of course, Mr. Prime Minister, Roosevelt replied. In fact, I believe that delegates Cameron, Flanagan and Pug are ready in the next room. Shall I send for them? Not yet, Mr. President, interjected Baron Makino Nabuaki from what seemed like far away. I am aggrieved, gentlemen, Nabuaki continued, to note that my well-intentioned proposal on the acceptance of racial equality has failed to be accepted by the consenting majority. I must express my profound disappointment and I am greatly concerned that the people of Japan will be terribly upset, and may view this rejection of Japan's core aim as an affront. You can be assured that I will do my best to contain the outrage, but Japan will need some concessions if we are to be made to believe that the Western Allies truly have our interests at heart. Very well, Mr. Nabuaki, Roosevelt replied. Please compile a comprehensive list of your demands, and we will work through them. Lloyd George raised an eyebrow and glanced at Sir Arthur Fitzwilliam. Was Roosevelt serious about this? Did he really want a list of Nabuaki's demands? Or was he merely pulling the Baron's chain? Surely he couldn't expect everyone present to consent to Japan's rapacious territorial demands in Asia? Just then, the door creaked open and two gentlemen walked in. Polly Mons announced loudly, 
Gentlemen, forgive me for interrupting. I merely wished to inform you that the proposal for the restitution for neutral nations has been accepted in the Minor Council. Furthermore, I wish to present Paul von Leto Vorbeck, who I'm sure you will remember from his previous service to the Council of Twelve. Poincaré interjected. What is the meaning of this, Monsieur Imans? Why do you bring an enemy delegate before us? René Massigli then spoke up. What His Excellency Raymond Poincaré means is that the appearance of von Leto Vorbeck on the Allied Council was the cause of a great deal of controversy and ultimately violence in my country. We would like to know the General's intentions before we welcome him wholeheartedly into our presence. We hope you understand, General. We wish merely to avoid a similar rupture as we experienced before. Paul von Leto Vorbeck made a slight bow and tipped his hat. No need to explain, gentlemen. I'll make this short and sweet. I wish merely to express my heartfelt desire and the wish of all German peoples everywhere for you to consider the possibility of granting Germany, Austria and Bavaria delegate status on the Minor Council. In our current position as observers, we're unable to affect any outcomes and following my participation in the current restitution treaty, I believe I've demonstrated my impartiality and importance to the general furtherance of a proper peace. I would be still more effective if I was empowered to sit among the minor nations of the conference. Here, neither myself nor my peers would have any overriding powers, but we would be able to play a more productive role. I appreciate the controversial past history of Germans sitting on Allied councils, but considering the presence of the Hungarian delegate in the minor council, I hope you'll agree that it is only fair to permit other former enemy delegates to take their seats. A time must come, gentlemen, when we are able to gather together and negotiate in harmony, and this time will never come if we continue to be marginalised. Paul von Leto Vorbeck let his words hang in the air. There was nothing more he could say. Fitzwilliam then interjected. General, perhaps there might be time to communicate to Mr. Tancred, who is currently in the presence of President Marshal Ferdinand Foch. We could request the President Marshal's consideration of the issue. If your accreditation on the Minor Council does not offend him, then it will likely not offend the people of France and may be accepted. Tancred may well have to promise something in return, though. Thank you, Sir Arthur, von Leto Vorbeck replied. You can inform the President Marshal that if he concedes this, the German government will be willing to officially recognise the independence of Bavaria, which it has thus far held off on doing. Hushed whispers spread around the room. Thank you, General. Roosevelt boomed, evidently determined to have the final word. We will consider these proposals with great care. At that, von Leto Vorbeck and Paul Imans left the room. Do you think he can be trusted? Poincaré asked. I always found von Leto Vorbeck an upstanding and decent man, Lloyd George replied, and the recognition would preserve Bavarian independence, as well as strengthen France's hand. On the other side of things, it may cause offence in France and enable the central powers to play a more active role in proposing legislation. Legislation which we will be able to veto, according to the structure of the conference, Wilson replied. I say, let him take a seat. It can't do any harm. Very well, Lloyd George said. I think it is time to check in with Mr Alistair Tankred in any case. More tea, Monsieur Tancred? the President Marshal asked. Please, Marshal, Tancred replied. Foch looked irritated and waited for Tancred to correct himself. Uh, President Marshal, my apologies, it still takes some getting used to, Tancred said. 
And it wasn't even my idea, Fosh chuckled. I always thought it was a bit of a mouthful myself, but my advisors say that it helps to remind everyone of my wartime service, which adds to the prestige of the office. Tankred nodded in acknowledgement and smiled, glad that that mystery was finally solved. The table they were seated at was covered in a red tablecloth and looked like it belonged in a banqueting hall. Seated near him were two ostensibly neutral delegates, the Swiss man, Felix Kalender, and the Spanish premier, Antonio Mora. Mora spoke up. Gentlemen, this meeting has been a long time in coming, and I believe presents great opportunities for us all. President Marshall, if you would indulge me for a moment, I represent the interests of the Spanish people. Spain, as you know, refrained from involving itself in the horrors of the war, and those slaves claim do none of its spoils. We are a peaceable people, interested only in the betterment of the human condition, and alongside my Swiss peer opposite, we hope to ensure that whatever differences that exist between the great nations of France and Great Britain, that these be solved. It is often said that only through French and German friendship will Europe be at peace. Equally, it is true that not until Britain and France are on amicable terms will the conference produce good fruit. Foch then interjected. It is my understanding that the Western Front Peace Treaty has been voided by those present in the London Conference. Pray tell me, what does this mean for the interests of France? Felix Kalender took that question. Your Excellency, I am Felix Kalender of the Swiss delegation. It was decided that that late treaty was outdated, owing to the fast pace of the negotiations and the weighted developments in other theatres. We avoided this treaty so as to provide new opportunities for mutual gain and it is the earnest hope of myself and my peers that a lasting peace be the result. Monsieur Kalender, Foch sighed, that does not quite answer my question. Felix Kalender looked perturbed, and Foch continued, I am afraid I was disappointed indeed to note that where once the Allied powers had approved of intervention in Russia, now it seems that only France and Poland are willing to stand firm in the face of the Bolshevik terror. This is especially unfortunate given the great progress which Generals Kolchak and Denikin continue to enjoy. I believe we should support these white Russians in their quest, and so I hereby announce a new initiative based upon the earlier treaty of friendship with the noble Poles. It has been termed the Continental Defence Accord, and is directed solely against the disturbers of the peace, primarily Bolsheviks. All governments are welcome to join, and I understand Belgium and Hungary already has, with Czechoslovakia, Romania and, of course, the exiled democratic Russian governments also applying. Tancred plonked his teacup onto the table with a slight clang, and Felix Kalender winced. Evidently, the Continental Defence Accord was news to the Brit as much as it was news to him. President Marshall, Tancred began, this news takes me by surprise, but I do not regret that the nations of Europe are forming to combat Bolshevism. If you do not regret this, Foch replied, then why did you rescind authorization for a British detachment to travel to Warsaw and participate in the Council for Russian Freedoms venture? Tancred had to think quickly on his feet. President Marshall, please understand, Britain is not as unified as France is currently. I regret to tell you that the British people have greatly tired of this war and are not as animated as your nation by the Bolshevik threat. Certainly we have allowed volunteers to take part, but we do not feel it wise to promise soldiers who may mutiny en route to their destination. That is, indeed, unfortunate, Mr. Tancred, Foch replied. But am I not correct in saying that Britain already has soldiers on the ground in Siberia and near the Crimea, not to mention in the Caucasus region? 
Tankred smiled. Very true, President Marshall. Perhaps I should correct myself and say that the British people do not wish to contribute any more soldiers to the anti-Bolshevik cause, having contributed so many already. Foch nodded, and then added, Gentlemen, are we in a position to make an official proposal? Are you accredited by your governments? Kalender, Mora, and Tancred all nodded. Very good, gentlemen. In return for the great concessions on the part of my country, I wish to request that the governments of the Council of Eight indicate their public and formal support of the expedition into Russia, under the banner of the Council for Russian Freedoms. This public and formal gesture of support would go a long way towards aiding the cause, even if soldiers cannot officially be sent. Tancred was confused. President Marshall, this should not be too much of a difficulty, but may I clarify, to what great concessions do you refer to? Mr. Tancred, Fosh sighed. I'm sure you have read the document which declares the Western Front Peace Treaty void. Within that document are contained several sly attacks upon my regime, not to mention the fact that it names Monsieur Mora opposite as the neutral arbiter of the peace. Tell me, Monsieur Mora, would a neutral arbiter conspire with the British Empire to extend its imperial influence across the Mediterranean at such a sensitive time? Antonio Mora was stunned into silence, his mouth open and his eyes darting from side to side. How had Foch found out about the Pact of Cartagena? Kalender broke the awkward silence. President Marshall, it seems that not everyone has been as forthright as they should have been. Kalender glared at both Tancred and Mora before adding, Will you support the commitments to Spain within that pact to receive portions of Italian Libya and to contain further aggression by the Italian government against that of Belgrade? Gentlemen, Foch said, holding up a hand, perhaps I did not make myself clear. I do not wish to support the Pact of Cartagena. I wish to attach France to it. The Italian government has become a liability in my country, especially as Vittorio Orlando's administration has rescinded its commitment to send soldiers into Russia. Furthermore, Italians and Slavs continue to fight in the Balkans, which distracts all potential freedom fighters there from taking part in the more important fight against Bolshevism. Tankard then interjected. President Marshall, this is excellent news. Should we work on drawing up a joint statement by Spain, Britain and France, which could be sent to Rome? Not quite so fast, Monsieur Tancred, Foch said, a smile now on his face, which lifted his moustache. Foch produced a document and began to read from it. As he did so, the eyes of the men in the room widened. Evidently, Foch had been preparing for their arrival for quite some time. Foch said, What I propose is threefold, and designed to cut through the difficult and tumultuous times of recent weeks. I believe that while many powers seem to reside in different camps, very few differences actually exist among them, and they would be stronger together. With the firm support of Britain, France and Spain, these differences could be ironed out, and greater progress made. Consider this. First, France has entered into the Pact of Cartagena, signalling support for British and Spanish initiatives against the Italian government if necessary. This will be formally announced shortly, if both aforementioned governments agree. Second, in return for the French support of this venture, the British and Spanish governments will announce their moral support and approval of the Continental Defence Accord. This message of approval will ease tensions among the Allied camp and anticipate any fears that France seeks to establish 
of rival power block, which is not at all my intention. Third, as mentioned, the Allied countries will note their support for French and Polish military manoeuvres into Russia. They will vow not to block volunteers from their own countries from signing up, and they will permit fundraising initiatives to take place as desired. Any government may, at any time, provide soldiers, and these soldiers will converge on Warsaw until further notice. In return for all of these concessions to France, I commit to accept the void agreement of the Western Front Peace Treaty, with one request. Per the document, Monsieur Antonio Mora is listed as the sole guardian of the peace, due to Mora's neutral status. However, in light of Spanish participation in the aforementioned scheme, Mora's neutrality may be compromised. Thus, I humbly suggest that a three-man arbitration committee be formed which will have the final say on the peace treaty. On this three-man committee, I would be content to accept Monsieur Mora's continued service, but I would also like to recommend Monsieur Felix Kalender. I welcome any suggestions for a third candidate to sit on this arbitration committee. To clarify, this arbitration committee will not dictate any peace treaty to the Allies. In fact, it will liaise with the world's governments and ensure that the final peace treaty is in accord with the 14 points proposed by Woodrow Wilson and the 16 points as proposed by my office a month before. Where the 14 points and 16 points conflict, this arbitration committee will vote to pave the way forward for compromise. You will realise from this, gentlemen, that I am giving up an awful lot. Fortunately, the French people are more interested in protecting French security and avenging themselves upon the Bolsheviks than in having the final say on the peace treaty any longer. I understand that this request in Article 15 of the 16 points was a major stumbling block for many friends of France. By removing this article here, I may suffer a loss in political prestige, but that is nothing if it provides the opportunity for Europe to cleave closer together in this difficult time. For the recognition of the Continental Defence Accord and the Pact of Cartagena provide the best means through which a lasting peace and the extinction of Bolshevism can be attained. A silence fell over the room as Foch sat back down. He had evidently been thinking for a long time about how to respond to the goings-on of the conference, and he was far better informed than anyone had expected. The question was, could they accept these proposals? For brevity's sake, Tankred began, let me refer to these requests as the four pillars. Please permit me to run through them once for the benefit of those in the room. Foch nodded in agreement. Thank you. From my understanding, President Marshall, you wish for France to join the Cartagena Pact for Allied recognition of the Continental Defence Accord and for the moral support of the Allies in the fight against Bolshevism. That is correct, Monsieur Tancred, Foch replied. And to the Arbitration Committee? Kalender interjected. When should this committee begin its work? Monsieur Kalender, Foch replied. Much of the bulk of the work will likely come its way in the final weeks of peacemaking, but in the meantime I had hoped for the Arbitration Committee to serve as the diplomatic neutral bridge between the different allies. If possible, the Arbitration Committee can service not merely France and those she has upset, but also any other allied parties who have lost sight of their original objectives, which must be to preserve a lasting peace for all, to contain Germany, and to defend civilization against Bolshevism. Antonio Mora then interjected. President Marshall, please accept my apologies. The Pact of Cartagena was not secret per se, so much as it was unfinished. Once the final touches on the agreement had been determined, then the governments of London and Madrid would have communicated its terms to Paris. Of course, Signor Mora, Foch replied with a smile. 
I have no doubt that those governments allied to France would never seek to work directly or indirectly against her. Now, at least, we all have a clear path forward to construct a proper lasting peace arrangement. At that moment, a messenger knocked on the door and walked to where Tancred was seated, before handing him a telegram. Tancred scanned its contents and moved his hand towards his mouth, where he began to bite the fingernail of his index finger. Foch attempted to read the British official's body language. Evidently, the news was not good. President Marshall, Tancred said while still looking at the page, this latest development from home may well complicate matters, but as an obedient servant of my government, I must relay it to you. I have here a request from Paul von Leto Vorbeck to gain delegate status rather than observer status for himself on behalf of Germany, Johann Hoffmann on behalf of Bavaria, and Karl Renner on behalf of Austria. In return for your approval of these concessions, Paul von Leto Vorbeck has indicated that Berlin will publicly recognise the independent status of Hoffmann's Bavaria government. Mora made an expression of his irritation. Why did it feel like he was both out of the loop in what he knew, as well as what other people knew about him? Now a further wrinkle would be added to Foch's four pillars. He would need time to think these developments over, and of the interests of Spain in the whole matter. Foch then spoke up. Gentlemen, already much has been proposed and presented. Perhaps it would do well to wait a week or two before returning to these issues. In the meantime, you could coordinate with your governments, and I will confer with my advisers. What I wish is for a proper accord between France and its allies to be constructed, and I believe I have made more than enough compromises to this end already. Per the terms of the 16 points, Bavaria's independence is a fact of international law, and the German government must accept this development. Further, I do not think it wise to welcome Germans onto the minor council, notwithstanding the check on that council's powers. Still, as I said, peace and cooperation are my ultimate aims. I will not rule out the accreditation of those delegates of the central powers. In return, I hope you will give a good account of my willingness to compromise to your home governments. Foch then turned with purpose to talk to Tancred. It has been wonderful to meet you, Mr. Tancred, but it has been less wonderful reading the very negative and spiteful reports emerging from your country's press. I would never seek to constrain such freedoms of the press, but I take issue with their insidious intentions to spread slander. This is not a dictatorship, gentlemen, nor is France subject to my whim. I am merely the President Marshal, the first citizen and its first commander. I will do whatever is necessary to shield my country from yet another attack from Germany, just as I will do all I can to rid the world of those ugly schemers in Bolshevik Russia. Please consider my four pillars, now amended with the German request to make five pillars. This will be available on the morrow. This document will then be available to send to your governments, whereupon we can collectively move past our difficulties and towards the resolution of a peace treaty with justice, amity and reason for all. Thank you. At that, Foch rose from his chair, as did the other three men. Foch then took each of their hands, excused himself, and left the room. For the next week, Kalender, Mora and Tancred would be free to stay in Paris and take in the sights. This was an eerie prospect, as Tancred had already put in a request for Fitzwilliam to join him so he would not be alone. To Kalender and Mora, relatively new to the conference, Paris seemed like a city of delights. But to Tancred, too many bad memories lived here for the British official to feel like he could possibly live it up. And he would have every reason for living it up. While he hadn't told Foch, at the bottom of the telegram had been the news that 
Lloyd George had recommended him for the Order of the Garter. Silver linings, at least, and something to look forward to if Paris ever released him. I am sure that the Right Honourable Delegate for Romania did not mean to offend Lady Chalk. Perhaps it would be advisable to take a few minutes for a break? Edward Benesch was doing his best to play peacemaker, but it was proving impossible to keep the Romanian and Hungarian delegates from getting at each other's throats. Cigarette smoke filled the air. I must protest that the lady doth screech too much, joked Yuan Bratianu, before looking around for something akin to a high five. Benesch rolled his eyes. Lady Chalk erupted. Never has Romania produced anything other than national sludge. You, Yuan, are below that sludge. You belong below ground, vanished from the memories of your race, which has never contributed anything to civilization. Bratianu laughed out loud. I do wish that before you killed the Hungarian president, you had allowed him to represent your country. At least I would be able to understand him. Gradually, the room began to empty. Neither the Hungarian nor the Romanian seemed to notice. The minor council's delegates made their way to the bar. They could already hear Paderewski playing the piano there. Before long, the interested delegates had found an impromptu place to have their meeting, a long table in the back of the bar. A wide range of voices could be heard among them, and it took some time for a semblance of order to return. It is a simple thing, gentlemen, Lorenzo Martelli exclaimed. Italy is coming under attack from all sides, and her interests, her justifiable and quite reasonable interests in the Balkans, must be respected. It is my understanding that Italy instigated the current war with the Serbs, Bognan Kudzal said. Your understanding is incorrect, sir, Martelli said, making no effort to hide his irritation. Serbian soldiers were engaging in disturbances and threatening Italian citizens. In the city of Ljubljana, Serbian soldiers burned Italian flags and molested Italian women in the streets. With Karhu Rosnak's urgent request for aid, Italian soldiers moved to Slovenia to protect their interests and the common good of decent citizens in the region. I'm afraid Italy finds herself in a very difficult position indeed, Pilsudski piped up. Yes, quite difficult, in fact. The President Marshal of France has informed me that he no longer recognises the authority of Italy in the region of Slovenia, and he urges all Italian soldiers to permit some mediation to take place in the afflicted Balkan zones. Pilsudski was reading off a document, which, judging by everyone else's expression, nobody else had seen yet. He what? Martili shrieked. So France has abandoned us too? A dishevelled-looking Bonifacio Fidel placed his hand on his countryman's shoulder. What my honourable friend from Sicily wishes to make clear, Bonifacio Fidel said, is that Italy has consistently acted within the bounds of international law. There was no coup launched in Rome, no compromising of democratic principles. Italians marched to defend their countrymen from attack when no one else would. For that we should not be penalised. Settle down, Mr Fidel, came a remark from Dmitry Robotnik. Perhaps if Italy's government hadn't abandoned its own original pledges to commit troops to the rescue of my country, then Foch would not have seen the need to abandon your government in turn. Bonifacio Fidel gasped before firing back. Your country is lost, Monsieur Robotnik, and it is not up to the world to rescue it from its own disasters. Perhaps, Robotnik fired back, but then it is within the power of the conference to defend ourselves from the disasters caused 
by Italy. Gentlemen, 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 came a quiet but self-assured voice from the corner of the table. It was one of Arabia's royal family, Prince Navoir Sharif. Is it not about time that we got along with one another? Surely you have heard of the expansion of the Continental Defence Accord? Perhaps there will be room for Italy in that arrangement, and perhaps there will be time still to save Russia. Let's not attack one another when the true enemies reside outside the walls of this room. The Arabian prince makes a good point. Forgive me, Signor Fidel, these are trying times for me and my country, and the stress can sometimes compel one to speak out of turn. Fidel looked at Sharif, then looked at Robotnik, before simply saying, You are forgiven, and leaving the table. Behold, Venizelos whispered to his party, the architect of Ifta is on the move. I'm glad I caught you, gentlemen, Venizelos added. I must bring forward information, which I have already communicated to the British Prime Minister regarding Delhi atrocities and terrible crimes committed against Greek people and Christian faithful in the city of Smyrna, a predominantly Greek city, as you know. I wish to gather support for a proposal which will support a Greek landing in the region. This will protect my countrymen against the threat of wandering thugs in the lawless area, and it will guarantee against reprisals by these splintering Turkish forces currently roaming the countryside. I believe that support for this proposal from the Minor Council will make a considerable impression on the Council of Eight. Can I count on your support? In a separate conversation, in a separate table, several feet away, was seated Charles Shear, surrounded by delegates from the Dominions. And that is why I came to you first, gentlemen, Shear exclaimed. I wish to cut through the drama and pontificating, which often takes place in the Minor Council, and which is currently taking place on the table across from us. It is the relationship of Britain and France which Alsace-Lorraine needs, so I hope you will listen carefully to my country's situation. Louis Botha of South Africa then interjected. Mr. Shear, with all due respect, I am not sure if we are best placed to offer support or guidance to you at this time. Perhaps it would be better to speak with Premier Poincaré directly. Thank you, Mr. Botha, Shear replied. Unfortunately, the status of my country tends to arouse strong feelings on our honourable premiers, so I felt it best not to go behind his back, certainly not, but simply to impress upon you my position at this time, so that you may understand it and be better positioned to represent this case, if necessary, to the government of Lloyd George. Pardon me, Mr. Shear, if I may. I represent the interests of a new dominion, that of Ireland. Through political compromise, my country has joined the ranks of the autonomous but still interconnected nations of the British family of nations. Would it be possible for Alsace to do the same? Thank you for your contribution, Mr. O'Kelly, but I must regretfully decline this possible course of action. Alsace is perhaps more sensitive a region to France than even Ireland is to Britain, for a variety of reasons. I shan't bore you with the details, but you should note my position has changed. I am the official delegate for the Alsace-Lorraine Office of France. Formerly, my status was in flux, but recently it has been modified. Yet I must confess that I am greatly vexed by rumours regarding the potential undoing of the Western Front Peace Treaty, which had previously guaranteed the status of my country. Forgive my intrusion, Mr. Shear. I am the Canadian Premier, Sir Robert Borden. I understand more than most your sense of vexation, for I was a primary partner to the negotiation of that Western Front peace treaty, along with my late colleagues. I have heard it confirmed that this treaty is no more. However, I have also heard rumours that it will be replaced 
by a set of compromises. Perhaps before worrying too much about your country's status, you should wait to see whether the situation has markedly changed. Again, I hope you will believe me when I offer my sincere thanks, Shear replied. But unfortunately, my country cannot wait indefinitely, as it has already waited for several months. Alsatians and Lorrainers are in desperate need of clarity, largely due to the extensive contributions we made to the German war effort and the potential penalties which may be incurred. In addition, with the country in a difficult position, Alsace-Lorraine would benefit from compensation and an injection of foreign investment. We hope for this rescue package to come from France, but it is difficult to be sure. The Australian David McKay then intervened. Mr. Shear, I heard it said that some 250,000 soldiers are currently eager to return to Alsace-Lorraine, and that some 17,500 French soldiers garrison your state. Is this true? Yes, General, that is correct, Shear replied. Thank you for your contribution. I would seek to decommission these soldiers gently and gradually. I would also use their engineering expertise in some cases to further building projects and repair much of the country's damaged infrastructure. Furthermore, my countrymen seek guarantees for the equality of language and citizenship for citizens present before 1870 and for a responsible and proper integration back into the French Republic to be undertaken soon so as not to leave my country's status in limbo. Very good, Mr. Shear, Louis Botha concluded. Perhaps if you manage to construct some form of treaties or document encompassing what the people of Alsace-Lorraine desire, we as the Dominions will present it to Mr. Lloyd George for consideration. In return, we ask that Alsace-Lorraine remains a firm friend of the British Empire and does not attempt to capitalise upon the wave of independence movements sweeping across Germany at this time. Charles Cheer responded without hesitation. Certainly, gentlemen, and my profound thanks to you all. Rest assured, the future of my country lies with France, not in independence. All I ask is for some measured autonomy, such as Paris can give. You should work quickly, Mr. Scheer, Sean T. O'Kelly remarked. I have heard it said that President Marshall Foch is currently in a giving mood. And that, dear delegates, is the end of the episode. During this instalment of the Delegation Game, we've seen an awful lot of things go down, and now it's time to have your say. Venizelos of Greece wants to know if you're willing to approve of a landing of Greek soldiers at Smyrna in support of the Greek population there. But the main event, arguably, of all proposals is that which asks whether you approve of President Marshall Foch's five pillars. These five pillars, in case you need a refresher, can be found in the Patreon episode attachments section, and I'll also upload it to the Facebook group. We've had a lot of votes come in for last week, so I take it that means everyone's happily plugged into the email list, which is great. As a final reminder, there'll be no episode next week as it's anniversary time. So join me the following Saturday on the 11th of May to see how the delegates react to what went down there. Until then, though, thanks so much for listening, dear delegates. And if you want to play a role in shaping the fate of the conference in our alternative world, make sure you head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails you know the drill by now, and sign up for $6 a month, which will get you a passport to play the delegation game, and so much more. That's it, guys. You've been great. I've been your delegation master, and I'll be seeing you all next time.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.